are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino, and KVMR-HD2, Nevada City. Today is Tuesday, August 25th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Foothill Dry Ice, family-owned dry ice manufacturers in Grass Valley with delivery service available. Also supplying conventional wet ice, open daily, 8.30 to 3, extended hours during power outage emergencies. Information at foothilldryice.com. And Zelmer Law Group, a real estate and business law firm with offices on Broad Street in Nevada City, also Santa Rosa. Jay Zelmer has been practicing law in California since 1983. Information at zelmerlawgroup.com. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, Paul Emery talks to the Union Newspaper's cartoonist R.L. Crabb about an incident in Nevada City 50 years ago. Former NSA Chief Mike Rogers says the intelligence community knew Russia was taking unprecedented steps during the 2016 election, but only later did it fully grasp the extent of that effort, NPR reports. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Embracing the Journey, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines and regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The family of a black man severely wounded Sunday in a police shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, plans a civil lawsuit. Chuck Kornbach of member station WUWM reports Jacob Blake's relatives and lawyers announced the suit at a news conference today. Blake's family says a Kenosha police officer shot the 29-year-old seven times when police responded to what they say was a domestic incident. Blake's father, Jacob Blake Sr., says it was as if his son didn't matter. But my son matters. He's a human being, and he matters. Blake says his son is in stable condition in a Milwaukee hospital but may not walk again. The family says it's seeking money through the civil lawsuit to pay the injured man's medical expenses and help raise his three children. The Wisconsin Justice Department is reviewing the shooting, which has sparked violent protests. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirnbach in Kenosha, Wisconsin. President Donald Trump's family takes center stage on night two of the Republican convention. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt explains, the theme of the evening is land of opportunity. The night will feature some familiar political voices, including Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. But it's the Trump family itself that figures prominently in tonight's program. Two of the president's children, Eric and Tiffany Trump, will deliver remarks and headlining the evening is First Lady Melania Trump. Melania Trump spoke at the convention four years ago, but her speech was overshadowed by the revelation that parts of her remarks appeared to have been lifted from another First Lady, Michelle Obama. A Trump Organization employee who worked on the speech ultimately accepted responsibility. Tonight, Mrs. Trump is expected to focus on her Be Best campaign and make the case for why her husband should get another four years in office. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News. As Hurricane Laura moves closer to the U.S. Gulf Coast, upwards of half a million people are being told to evacuate. Laura is expected to make landfalls a powerful Category 3 hurricane late tomorrow or early Thursday along the Texas-Louisiana coast. Another record day for both the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 indexes. NPR's Scott Horsley has more. 
The S&P 500 index rose more than a third of a percent, while the Nasdaq jumped three-quarters of a percent. Meanwhile, the Dow dipped slightly. Adding to the mixed picture, sales of new homes jumped to a 13-year high last month, propelled by strong demand and rock-bottom interest rates. Consumer confidence, on the other hand, took a hit. Best Buy reported strong sales in its most recent quarter, with lots of people buying computers and other electronics to work or study from home. But the retailer warns of slower sales in the current quarter as pandemic relief payments dry up. And American Airlines says it plans to lay off some 19,000 workers in October unless it gets more help from the federal government. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. Despite a rise in new coronavirus cases in France, the country's students will return to school next week as planned. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports new cases have been rising as high as three to 4,000 a day there. Most of the new infections are in the 40 and under age group from parties and gatherings where people are not social distancing. The health minister warned people not to infect the vulnerable and elderly. Starting September 1st, face masks will be mandatory in all workplaces and in schools. Je suis Pauline Dubois, professeur de SVT au Collège Jules Romain dans le 7e à Paris. Pauline Dubois is a 7th grade science teacher and the mother of two teenagers. She agrees that it's time to go back. French schools were in session for a few weeks in June. Dubois says only a handful of students showed up then, but she says in September, classes will be full. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A kayaker who found a message in a bottle floating in a Delaware River has reunited it with a woman who wrote it 35 years ago. According to local TV reports, Brad Washmuth found the bottle bobbing in the Broadkill River this month, just days after a tropical storm moved through. At first, he says he thought it was a piece of trash, but then found the letter inside written by a woman named Kathy Riddle and her cousin Stacy Wells, dated August 1st, 1985. Described the family's pets and asked future readers if they had any. Surprisingly, despite decades of storms and tides, the bottle turned up just a short distance away from where the original letter writer's home in Milton, Delaware is located. It's not clear where the bottle and letter inside spent all those decades before being found. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight there will be widespread haze with a low around 63 with light and variable winds. On Wednesday in the foothills, widespread haze will continue with some sunny skies and a high near 87, and wind of 5 to 8 miles per hour through the day and evening, and overnight lows will be around 62 with widespread haze before 11 p.m., and then clear skies expected. Tonight in Sacramento, there will be widespread haze with a low around 66 and winds of 6 to 10 miles per hour. On Wednesday, the haze will continue with a high near 94 and winds around 8 miles per hour. And Wednesday night, there will be widespread haze before 11 p.m. Then clear skies are expected with a low around 62 and winds around 10 miles per hour overnight. In Truckee, there is a red flag warning in effect until 9 p.m. tonight. Overnight, there will be a widespread haze with a low around 46 and winds of 10 to 15 miles per hour and winds around 10 to 15 miles per hour. On Wednesday, sunny skies are expected with a high near 79 and winds of 5 to 10 miles per hour with gusts as high as 25 miles per hour possible. And Wednesday night skies will be mostly clear in the Truckee region with a low around 46. 
Tonight in Angels Camp, widespread haze is expected with a low around 66 and winds of 3 to 6 miles per hour. On Wednesday, widespread haze will continue with a high near 91 and winds of 5 to 7 miles per hour in the afternoon and evening with the haze possibly dissipating and skies clearing with a low around 65 overnight. Well, I'm speaking with R.L. Crabb. He's cartoonist for the Union newspaper, and I'm not going to say political cartoonist, but you do engage in social commentary. Uh, Welcome to KVMR, Bob. Uh, Good to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me. My goodness, uh, lots going on. I don't know where to start, but you know, you you came out with a with a nice article or uh, that you wrote in the uh, editorial section of the Union uh, about a week ago. That was a, a spin on the uh, the unrest that we had in the streets of Nevada City a couple of weeks ago, with the uh, uh, protesters and counter protesters, uh, Black Lives matter protesters or a version of them and the others and you referred back to what you call a lazy summer afternoon in 1970 nevada city and told the story about something that you experienced way back then and that was a and you spun it in with the current story Uh, tell our listeners about this well actually i wasn't there that day but uh it didn't take long for the word to get around. And and basically what happened was uh, Alan and Gary Rogers, who had the, uh, the frame shop, which at that time was uh, on Pine street uh, across the street from uh, where Friar Tux is now. And they organized this little street fair called country pie and it was a crafts fair, and uh, basically, you know, they were selling pottery and candles and handmade wares, and they closed off that little section of Pine Street there between commercial and broad, and uh, thought that everything would be fine, and uh, everything wasn't fine. Uh, some of the locals, and this, you have to keep in mind, this is in 1970, so it was still during the time when hippies were looked at around here askew. <laughs> you know, they, uh, so, you know, there were a bunch of guys, ex-miners, loggers, retired guys, or guys that were just out of work, and they were hanging out to, at Eddie's Broiler across the street, and uh, they just didn't like the look of this. There were, you know, these long-haired people, and they didn't have shoes on, and some of them didn't have shirts on, and uh, they were grumbling about that. And uh, at one point, this guy that we used to call Hippie Bob, I don't know what his real name was, he was a young fellow, he had long blonde hair and a little beard, and uh, he was crossing Broad Street, and he stopped midway to talk to somebody. And a truck driven by one of the local uh, loggers was waiting for him to move along and you know they kept talking and so he pulled forward and said you know get out of the way 
So Hippie Bob responded with a few choice words and a one-finger salute, which infuriated the logger. So he parked his vehicle and returned to the scene where he he got uh, together with the, the other people that were hanging out there. And uh, they uh, started threatening to... Uh, to drive their logging trucks through the the street fair. And they confronted Alan Rogers. And I I talked to Alan because, you know, I I needed to get, uh, you know, uh, some firsthand accounts of what actually went down. So Alan says, well, you know, they came down there and and, uh, they, they were yelling and threatening. And he goes, they were big guys. And they demanded an end to the street closure. And he said, "I he goes at that time, you know. I think Roger uh, Allen was his, you know, it was probably in his thirties back back then. Said uh, they didn't intimidate me. I was young. I was in pretty good shape. I'd just come back from the Peace Corps overseas, so I met them toe to toe. And still, uh, he didn't want to see his friends, you know, be vandalized by these guys. So he said, okay, we'll just close it down. Let's just, you know, de-escalate the situation. And, uh, and so it kind of went away other than, then I, I did hear that afterwards that hippie Bob did get his beard pulled out <laughs> by the roots. Whoa. Uh, so apparently that was the, uh, the extent of the, of the violence that happened that day, as far as I know. But, uh, so the, it, it was put on the agenda for the next city council meeting when the uh, city council still met it upstairs at the old, uh, before the remodel was done, uh, there was just a little room upstairs where they would have city council meetings. You know, it probably held about 40 people at the most. And 300 people showed up, so they moved it to the Elks Hall, which at that time was above where Friar Tux is now, and it, you know has a large room up there. So they moved it up there, and uh, and I've got some quotes here. For, I, I looked up the Union articles from the time, and uh, so basically, you know, the main subject was the townspeople's complaint that dirty, half-naked people with, in quotes, ugly armpits, as one woman described them, were allowed to stand and sit on the sidewalks in front of the businesses, and they were driving legitimate customers away. Now, Police Chief Moon, uh, who was the father of our present sheriff, uh, stated that uh, that local ordinances against loitering had been voided by state law and there wasn't really anything they could do about who was hanging around in town. So the next few minutes, uh, you know, uh, between the uh, city council and the the protesting anti-protesters, I guess you would call them, Went, in, went into detail about how long have you lived here. Uh, Councilman Bob Payne, who had spent most of his life here, said, I've been here 39 years. Dr. Leland Lewis, uh, who now has an award for the arts named after him, which I was been a recipient of, said, uh, well, you simply can't legislate against long hair and clothing. 
And he goes, I've been here six years, but what does that have to do with anything? So uh, Richard Hodgkiss, uh, one of the uh, artists uh, who organized Country Pie, said that he was a lifelong resident of the county. His wife had been a teacher at the Nevada City School System for six years, and this has been the best place for our child to grow up until this fiasco. So uh, this went on for a couple of hours going back and forth, and uh, basically, you know, it wasn't too... uh, too awful uh, violent, although the, the, uh, there was a lot of grumbling and a lot of nasty looks going back and forth. I know that one of my friends who was there uh, got up and, and made the comment uh, that uh, he goes, you're going to run the hippies out, just, you know, you're going to railroad the hippies just like you did Bill Ebaugh. And if you know the Bill Ebaugh story, he was the the original hippie of Nevada City who was accused of murder and hunted down and shot. That's another story. uh, We should revisit that one of these days. But anyway, uh, by mentioning that, that really uh, inflamed things because a lot of people were involved in that whole story from back in the 40s. So uh, afterwards, I know uh, my friend and another friend we're leaving the building and, and uh, we're surrounded by the the loggers and, you know, uh, he, one of them pulled a knife out, you know, the, uh, one of my friends did. And they go, look out, the hippie's got a knife. <laughs> but uh, they managed to run away before anything could happen. But it, it was a very tense time and it compares very much so to what happened in Nevada City a few weeks ago with the protesters, uh, the BLM people and the uh, counter-protesters. The, the big difference being that this time they have cameras. That happened a mere 50 years ago, Bob. Yes, 50 years. <laughs> My goodness. Exactly. My goodness. Well, uh, so now we have uh, kind of the history somewhat repeating itself. Uh, some people claim it's not that much repeating itself, but it, it was it, it was a confrontation on the streets of Nevada City that will have repercussions for a while as the, you know, research into what happened and some of the charges that were made will kind of go their course. But uh, it's interesting to look back uh, and see. Of course, the hippies really did survive, and in my view, had a major role in the kind of renaissance and revitalization of the local economy as we became more based on uh, uh, craft-type businesses and stores and storefronts and arts and creative uh, endeavors. So that's uh, that happened later in the 70s. But taking us back, Bob, that's a, that's a, a good story for people to, to remember. Yeah, it, like I say, it's uh, you know it's not exactly uh, the same thing as what happened recently, but it, it just shows that uh, history does kind of repeat itself. Or as Mark Twain said, sometimes it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Bob. I just love talking with you, uh, but we're just about we're just about out of time. Uh, like to remind everyone that your cartoons appear in the Union um, two two times two times a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays. Well, it's wonderful. We have a newspaper um, as vital as the Union, and every 
time I pick it up and read it, I greatly appreciate it and certainly appreciate your contributions. Well, thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate it. It was August 25th, 2016. Four years ago today, the head of the CIA was briefing Harry Reid, then the top Democrat in the Senate, one of a series of urgent classified briefings that month to the most senior lawmakers in Congress. The message that Russia was actively working to elect Donald Trump president. Well, here we are four years later to the day, and U.S. intelligence is publicly warning that Russia is still at it, now actively working to reelect Donald Trump as president. This anniversary of sorts seemed a good moment to take stock. And to do that, we've called someone who was in the room, who led countless classified briefings on Russia in the run-up to and the aftermath of the 2016 vote. Mike Rogers ran the National Security Agency and commanded U.S. Cyber Command for President Obama, and then stayed on to serve President Trump. Admiral, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So let's look back before we look ahead. Four years ago exactly, how, how much did we know about what Russia was up to? We collectively, the intelligence community and the United States government, we had an awareness that the Russians had been attempting to penetrate the computer systems, the networks uh, of political parties in the United States. Mm. And by the summer of 16, collectively, we, the U.S. intelligence community had come to the conclusions that we were dealing with a systematic effort on the part of the Russians to attempt to, through a cyber and disinformation, largely through social media, but using those capabilities to influence the outcome of the U.S. election. Did we do enough to try to stop them? Well, I think in fairness to everybody involved, um, while we had some level of knowledge in the summer of 2016, we didn't fully appreciate the social media and the disinformation side, just how aggressive it was and how, how much resources the Russians were really putting into the side of the effort. We had some appreciation, but I don't think we really fully understood the magnitude. Is there something specific as you look back with the benefit of hindsight that you think, I wish we'd done that? Um, I wish we had taken broadly more action prior to the election itself. Once we saw in the fall that Putin, after President Obama spoke to him in late September, my memory, it's about probably two months, a month and a half before the election. As we saw then in the aftermath, this activity wasn't stopping. I wish we had taken more direct, more public action sooner as opposed to doing so after the election itself. That's two different things. More direct, meaning playing hardball with the Russians, engaging at their level, and then more public, meaning sharing more with the Americans? Um, I, I would say oh. enacting a price, uh-huh. making them pay a price for the behavior as part of that. Do you think Putin then or now did pay much of a price for interfering? Um, the way I would look at it is I think as he looks back, it was a good effort, it was a good investment, and it was probably more effective than the Russians uh, had anticipated in some ways. Is your sense that he paid enough of a price to give him serious pause about doing so again? I would argue not enough that's made him stop. I will say the 2020 dynamic is a little different in some ways than 2016. Such as? So first on our side, on the U.S. side, 
I thought that the U.S. government team broadly did a good job of ensuring internally, and I would argue by extension externally, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, that there's much more general awareness, both within the public and at a government level. There's been increased government focus on attempting to ensure both our electoral associated systems are much more able to be resistant to attempts to penetrate, manipulate, or extract from them. There has been much greater dialogue and much greater awareness working with social media companies to say, look, we need to have a greater sense of what is true, what is not true. Um, so I would just say broadly, there's a much greater awareness and a much greater set of activities ongoing to ensure that the 2020 election process isn't as impacted uh, or, you know, the Russians don't have the same success, if you will. A big picture question. Did Russia, did Putin succeed in 2016? From the point of view of if, if the if the goal was to sow chaos and, and doubt and divide Americans, and here we are in 2020 divided and fearful about the integrity of this upcoming election. So remember, we saw this strategy in 2016. We believe the strategy was designed to do several things. It was designed to undermine our institutions, weaken our political will, and fracture us as a society. And the Russians didn't create these fractures. They didn't create these divisions. Rather, they studied us. They identified these fractions, if you will, these areas of conflict, and they poured gasoline on them by assuming them. identities, by manipulating imagery, by manipulating information, by attempting to inflame our citizens' views on different issues. So you definitely saw them do that, and you have to give them credit. I think there was some measure of effectiveness. How much, I don't know. But I guess my question is, can you draw a direct line from where we are today back to 2016 and say, you know what, Like they set out with a goal, and, and here we are. They, they achieved it. I would say the goal continues. I haven't seen any lessening of commitment to achieving that goal, you know, weakening our institutions to, uh, it would appear, again, I don't know the data, but based on the comments uh, to, again, um, you know, desire a particular outcome, you're seeing a consistency over time. And in fact, it predates the 2016 election in some ways. You see a commitment on their part. Putin isn't clearly, I think the lesson to be drawn is, we have yet to be able to change their calculations to make them decide that engaging in these kinds of behaviors are not in their best interest and that they, the Russians particularly, will pay an excessive price, one that leads them to believe we should stop doing this. We clearly have not seen that. Admiral Rogers, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Mary Louise. That is Mike Rogers. He ran the National Security Agency and commanded U.S. Cyber Command under President Trump and before that under President Obama. Welcome to another edition of Your Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. With the recent stock split announcements from Tesla and Apple, got me thinking as to whether the average investor truly understands how stocks work. Stock splits are thought to be a good thing. It is, however, one of life's better examples as to the difference between perception and reality. There are two types of stock splits, a common split and a reverse split. Due to the complexity of the two events, I will cover the reverse split next week. A common split is the type more investors are familiar with. 
It entails a company giving current shareholder more shares. For example, if you own 100 shares of ABC Company and they undertake a two-for-one stock split, you're giving one extra share for every share you own. You end up with two shares instead of one. So in a two-for-one split, instead of having 100 shares, you would end up with 200 shares. A three-for-one split means you would end up with three times as many shares, or 300 if you started with 100. Sounds great, right? But not so fast. What many investors don't realize is whatever the ratio is for the split, the stock price is reduced by the same negative multiple. So if the share price is $10 and you have 100 shares, you have $1,000 worth of stock. 10 bucks a share at 100 shares. The company announces a two-for-one stock split. You end up with 200 shares. However, the stock price is cut to $5 a share the day of the split. In other words, if they double the amount of stock you have through a split, they cut the price of the stock in half. Your new amount then, in this example, is 200 shares, but they cut the price in half to five bucks. So your net worth of stock, the same, $1,000. Simply put, if they double the amount of stock, the price is cut in half. Do a three-for-one split and the share price is cut in thirds, while you end up with 300 shares and so on and so forth. Net effect? Really, actually, none. Think of it of like taking a pencil and breaking it in two. You now have two pencils, but you actually have no more pencil than you started with. The question then becomes if an investor ends up with more shares after a split, but each share is worth that much less, how does the investor benefit from a split? In actuality, he doesn't. In a stock split, there is no monetary gain to the shareholder. There is a reason, however, a stock split is thought to be a positive thing for existing shareholders. After a split, the stock price is lower. In the basic presumption of the theory of economic demand, a lower price means more demand. Indeed, if a stock price is lowered through a split, that can mean more people may buy the stock. And the more buyers there are for a stock, the higher the price may go. In a real-world example, the share prices of both Tesla and Apple recently split and... When they do the actual split, the price of those stocks will come down. Tesla did a 5-for-1 split with a share price in the area of 1400 when they announced the split. That means for every share of Tesla you might own, you'll get four more. The price of Tesla, however, will be cut by that same percentage, meaning Tesla shares, which were 1400 bucks or so when they announced the split, will be down in the $300 range. Apple did a 4-for-1 split. So the price will drop to 25% of what it was, although the actual split garners the shareholder no real advantage in the math of the split. The reality of the lower stock price means more people may buy the stock. Indeed, as a generally accepted belief, investors like lower price stock. If a stock price is too high, fewer investors will likely buy it. And if a stock price is lower, more people may buy it. Or so that's the belief. Keep in mind, even though a company may announce a split on a certain date, it doesn't actually split the stock until a later date. So therefore, the price may change on the day of the announcement and the day they actually do the split. And that does it for today's Money Matters. Today's news is not meant as individual investment advice and not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Stock splits are no guarantee of future movements of the stock of any kind. I'm an investment advisor representative at Vantage Financial Group, a registered investment advisor located at 164 Maple Street, Suite 1 in Auburn, California, 95603. The views expressed are my opinions only and do not necessarily reflect those of Vantage, this radio station, their staff, management, or underwriters. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com 
where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249. My name's Mark Gruber. That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next, we bring you Embracing the Journey and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson.